Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to us that we might see you as you are, that we might know you, not just in the abstract, but personally through your living and active word. We pray that as we look to that word now, that you would speak to us through your word. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Amen. Well, today we're looking at Psalm 26. It's a psalm written by David, and it's not the most well-known psalm in the world. Uh, it's probably a psalm that many of you are, are reading now, and you're like, huh, have I, have I ever read this psalm before? I read through the psalms that one time, so I guess I did, but, but it doesn't really stir a lot of recollection, a lot of memories. And it, it wasn't originally the psalm that I was planning on preaching on this week, actually. Originally, the plan was I was going to preach on, on Psalm 3 this week. As we preached on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 the last two weeks, it seemed, seemed like a decent place to go. But, but I decided to go with this psalm for a couple of reasons. First of all, because, because I can hear the echoes of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in Psalm 26. And, and reading it and, and studying it and preaching through it here uh, makes a lot of sense, right? Having uh, just going, go, go through Psalm 1 in Psalm 2. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, was with this being Veteran Member Sunday, it seemed that this would be a, a good psalm to look at because there is a, a theme woven into this psalm that actually uh, is threaded through Psalms 26, 27, and 28. And that theme specifically is the house of God and the people of God. We can see it in this psalm and in the next two psalms after it. Uh, we, we probably won't cover those next two psalms, so, so we're going to have to get that all from, from this psalm here today. But with it being Veteran Member Sunday, to look to a psalm that dealt with the house of God, the people of God, seemed to make a lot of sense, since this is a Sunday where we recognize God's faithfulness to the church. And what are the people of God? But the people that God has set aside for himself that they might follow him. And in this psalm, we see that, that following God means that we truly trust him to be our faithfulness. We trust him for our faithfulness. We trust him for our fellowship. And finally, we trust him for our foundation. We begin first with seeing how we trust God for our faithfulness. Verse 1 says, Vindicate me, <clears throat> vindicate me, O Lord. And if you have uh, an ESV study Bible, you might notice in the, the note down at the bottom of it that it says this. It says, for God to vindicate the worshiper is for God to distinguish between the faithful and the impious. He's making this distinguish, uh, this distinguishing between those who are his people and those who aren't his people. To say, Lord, vindicate me in the Psalms is, is to say, see me and, and designate me and point out that I am one of your people. The, this word integrity that we see, it follows right after it, follows with this. It says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in 
integrity. And in the Psalms, when it, it talks about integrity, it's not so much talking just about holiness, which is how we might think originally that that's, that's what it's saying, but, but rather <clears throat> it, it carries the concept or the idea of, of wholeness or, or oneness, a completeness, uh, especially in the, the sense of a wholeness, a whole, wholeheartedness of, of sincerity, of faith. It's not so much a faultlessness as it is our heart is, is given to God completely. And so as those who are set aside to be his people, to follow him faithfully alone, it would make sense that our hearts would be set aside for him. And they would be designated to go to him alone. And so he says, I have also trusted in the Lord and I shall not slip. Now some different translations translate this a little differently. Some of them say in a different sense, they say, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. And it's interesting when we look at those two, you, you note the difference there. The, the one is saying, I, I will not slip or I shall not slip in the future. The other one is saying kind of, I, I have not slipped in the past. And so it calls us to try to figure out, well, well what's going on here in verse 1? Is he saying that, that I haven't slipped, I haven't stumbled, I haven't fallen in the past? Or is he committing to the fact that he's not going to in, in the future? And, and I think that whether it is I have not in the past or I will not in the future, the important thing to remember is this, that our confidence for the future is based on God's faithfulness in the past. I'm going to say that again because that's a key point. Our confidence in the future is based on God's faithfulness in the past, right? That, that's how things work. We, we are confident in those who have proved themselves to be worthy of our confidence. And if somebody has proven themselves not to be worthy, hopefully we're not so confident in them. And that's why it's important for us to, to do what the Bible talks about here. In, in the Psalms, sometimes it talks about how, how I will proclaim your mighty works, O Lord. That's something we need to do. We need to regularly do that. We do that here from the pulpit, yes, but we need to be doing that regularly as well between uh, the conversations we have with one another or, or even as we're just uh, proclaiming those mighty works to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the mighty works of God, how he has through his sovereign and omnipotent hand, been busy at work in our lives, how he has protected us and provided for us and carried us through difficult times, how he has built us up in the faith, how he has strengthened our faith and preserved our faith, and how he has done that in the context of the church even as well. On a veteran member Sunday, it makes sense that we would think about this, how God has worked sovereignly through the ministries of this church to build up the people who are here today, people who have passed through here and are no longer with us, and how he will in the future build up those people who even have yet to enter the doors of this church. We look forward to God working in such a way, and we are confident that he will work in such a way because our confidence for the future is based on his faithfulness in the past. And in verse 3, we read, Your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. This is a place where I, I greatly prefer, actually, the translation that the 
English Standard Version gives. Instead of loving kindness, it uses the word, uh, the words steadfast love. And instead of truth, it uses the words faithfulness. So this is what it says. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Let me look at those two phrases, those two key, key phrases I mentioned. First of all, the, the steadfast love of God is a particular love that he has. It is, a, it is a covenant love that he has. It is more than the love that he has just generally for the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a, a general love that God has for, for, for us all. But there is a very particular love that God has for his covenant children. It is a special love. It is a unique love. It is an adopting, familial love. Now you might be saying, well, wait, how can there be different kinds of love? That, that doesn't make sense. Either you love somebody or you don't love them, right? But, but isn't that true in our lives as well? That there, there is a, a, a number of different kinds of love that we have for different people, right? We might love our neighbor and want the best for our neighbor. And we might even go out of our way to help them. But, but it's not the exact same way that we would, say, go out of the way to help our own children where they in trouble or our own spouse or our own parents or you know there's different kinds of love aren't there and 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 we would go to the ends of the earth to help certain people because our love for them is so deep especially those who are in our family and that's what god is saying he's, he's saying my familial love for you my covenant love for you as my children whom i have adopted is so great and that's the kind of love it's talking about here. The steadfast love of God is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. It's interesting how he says this, isn't it? He, he doesn't say, I will walk in my faithfulness. I, he's talking about how his walk is going to be faithful, but, but now he, he elaborates on that, and he says that this walk, this faithful walk, of, uh, this walk without stumbling is not just a matter of me being faithful to you. It is far more a matter of you, God, being faithful to me. You see, because if I am going to be faithful, it is only because you are faithfully holding me in the palm of your hands. Left to my own devices, I would stumble and fall at every step. I would, I would wander away like a lost lamb. But the good shepherd cares for me and loves me and he guides me along his path he keeps me from wandering and when i run away he chases after me and brings me back his faithfulness is what keeps me in the faith and when we see him talk about his steadfast love and his faithfulness it it echoes what god has revealed about himself way back in exodus when, when he's declaring to Moses his name so that Moses might tell the people of God who this God is that has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Who is this God? What is his name? And God says, tell them I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that is who this god is 
He's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is what David says in verse 3. Your loving kindness, your steadfast love is before my eyes and I will walk in your faithfulness. It's a theme that is woven throughout the scriptures. Perhaps we, we know the verse in Lamentations 3. We might not know that it's from Lamentations 3, but you've probably heard the verse at some time. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great indeed is the faithfulness of God. And his steadfast love to us never ceases. He is faithful. And our being numbered with the faithful is wholly dependent upon his promises. Our hope of faithfulness is grounded not in our works, but in his. So, he is our faithfulness. That's what following God is trusting him to be that. It's also following God means trusting him for our fellowship. So in verse 4 we read, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. It's not a matter of being better. You know, I, I'm gooder than they are. That's not the idea at all. It's not, it's not I'm, I'm more special than them. That's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about the place where he belongs, the place where he, he, he fits in. And, and he speaks here in verses 4 and 5 first about the, the people that he doesn't really fit in with. He, he, he doesn't give himself over to. And, and here especially we hear echoes of Psalm 1, right? The very beginning of the psalm, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's the same idea. David's saying here, I, I, I don't do these things because I know it's not what God would have me do. He, he, he would not have me fill my whole heart and my mind and my life with the ways of those who are running away from God as fast as they can, who are against God wholeheartedly. Rather, I devote myself to walking with God by surrounding myself with, with people who are walking with God, by, by immersing myself in a fellowship of people who would walk with God. You know, it, if you looked at your life throughout the week, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, would, would people know that you are walking with God? Would they say, hey, look at them, there's something different about them? If not, perhaps it's because we do walk in the counsel of the wicked. Because we do stand in the way of sinners. We do sit in the seats of scoffers. And sadly, we don't delight in the law of the Lord. So David says here, I will wash my hands in innocence. He's not saying that he's, he's completely free of any sin, that he's not sinned. He's not innocent in that sense, but he realizes that the innocence that he has is a matter of God's granting it to him. He, he realizes that, that it's only by God's grace that he can be seen holy in God's eyes. And how do I know this? I know this be, because of what he says right after that. He says, I'll wash my hands in innocence. And if he thought that that was a matter of him doing that on his own, he'd say, I wash my hand in innocence. Aren't I special? Right? But that's not what he says. He says, I wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar 
O Lord. What is an altar? An altar is a place where you make sacrifices. Why would he have to make a sacrifice if he were truly innocent on his own? He would not. He would not. He makes sacrifice because he knows he is guilty of sin. He goes on and says, That I may proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving. What is he thankful for? He is thankful for the forgiveness that God has graciously offered him. And tell of your wondrous works, like we mentioned a moment ago. The most wondrous of those works being the fact that he has been forgiven of his sin. And that is where we are too. And we tell of the wondrous works of God, like I said before. We tell how he has helped us, how he has provided for us, he has protected us, how he has cared for us. But most of all, the most wondrous of his works is when he sent his son to die for us. When he sent his perfectly holy son who hadn't sinned, who was innocent in every way. Pure and holy, spotless was he. Yet he died for you and for me. He shed his blood on Calvary's cross, washing us clean of the filth of our sin. What a wondrous work is that. And so so David, thankful for the forgiveness that he has, thankful for the grace of God, says, Lord, in verse 8, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He loves being in the dwelling of God. The house of God is where he longs to be. He longs to be there where God's glory is made manifest. In the Old Testament, that was in the the tabernacle when, when the people were traveling, and then in the temple, finally, where the temple was built in Jerusalem so so that God could dwell there. His very glory dwelled in the in the temple. It's it's not quite the same way as today, right? Because 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 today God's glory is not not manifestly present in, in one singular place like it was then. It was only there. And so that there's a sense in which we sometimes use this language, don't we? We talk about going to the house of God. You know, we talk about our church building as well. It's a house of God. And 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 there's a sense in which that's okay. I understand what we're saying there. We're saying it's a place designated for for God and, and for God's glory, but 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 really shouldn't all of our places be designated for God and for his glory? Shouldn't all of our places be be for him ultimately? See, see the, the sense in the Old Testament, the temple was the house of God. When David talks about the house of God, that's what he's talking about. He's, that is where he lived. That was his place. If God had a return address that he had to put on the envelope before he sent the mail out, it would have said, the temple, when he sent out his mail. See, that's where he lived. His glory was there. Where does he live now? Where does he live now? Well, the Bible tells us that John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It, it literally tabernacled among us. It pitched its tent among us. It's saying Jesus, God incarnate, came to earth as a human being. He, he lived in our midst. But then he died and he rose again and he ascended on high. But what did he do then? But sent his spirit. He sent his spirit that it might dwell within his people. That it might dwell in our midst. And so God, in a very real way, in a very true way, dwells in the hearts of his children. He dwells in the midst of his people. He dwells amongst his beloved. 
so that we can truly say more so than this building being a house of God. We as a people are the house of God. And we should remember that. We should remember that, that, that our bodies are a holy temple. And this body, corporately, is a holy temple of God. Called for his purposes. And so that's where David wants to be. He wants to be in the midst of God's people. He wants to be with God's people. Because that's where God is. God is at work in our midst. He is with us. And so that's where God, where David wants to be. Not just because the people who are around him in the church are fun people, and you're all really fun people. Not just because you're really interesting, but you are really interesting. But because of the shared experience of God's grace and his glory. You know, if you were, you were in an experience where you had, let's say you were in an elevator or something in a really tall building, and you're up high, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the alarm goes off and the cable apparently is fraying and it's going to snap and there's you and somebody else in the elevator and you're like, oh my goodness, we're going to, we're going to fall to our death here and you can't get out. But then, but then after what seems to be a, a, an interminably long time while you're stuck there on the edge of death, somebody, somebody manages to get to you and they save you and they rescue you and this other person, I imagine that you wouldn't just say goodbye to that other person and, and never talk to them again. You probably, probably would stay in touch with them you'd, you'd be, because you have this shared experience, right? You've gone through this together. It's forged a relationship that would probably last for the rest of your life. And that's how we are. We, we have this shared experience with one another of having been at the point of death. We, we are at the point of condemnation, eternal damnation, staring right at it. And Jesus rescues us. And that shared experience binds us together. And it should cause us to long to be with one another, to fellowship with one another. And God provides us this fellowship through his body, the church. In verse 9, he says, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. The idea of gather there is to, to kind of sweep away, like you might gather all the dust, all the dirt on the floor together with a broom. And it's a picture of judgment, really. He's saying, don't judge me with the sinners. As for me, I walk in the integrity and the oneness, the, the following you faithfully redeem me and have mer be merciful to me. Again, we see here the, the, the integrity is not a matter of complete sinlessness. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to be redeemed. <laughs> the very next word, redeem me and be merciful to me. He's depending on God for that. And so... So God is what we depend upon for our fellowship. God is what we depend upon also for our foundation. He is the foundation that we stand on. He is the one upon whom everything is founded and built. My foot stands in an even place, he says, in verse 12. If you ever played golf, and you had a ball that landed kind of on the side of a hill, and you're getting ready to hit the shot, and I'm a terrible golfer, so, so maybe if you're a good golfer, this isn't the case, but I know it's the case for me. I try to hit a ball when I'm on the side of the hill, and it's really hard because, because you can't get your balance quite right because you're leaning over further than, than normal, and, and when you swing, even if you have your balance and you're set, it's hard because, because the ball flies off your club differently on the hill. You, you know, you, it, it's just so much easier when you're on flat ground, solid ground, firm ground, right? It's easier to, to, 
just do what you need to do because you have a firm footing. Christian life can be this way at times too. Oftentimes we, we try to live our life in, in a way as to be on an uneven ground with shaky, a shaky foundation where we are, we are claiming our foundation as God, but when we get down to it, it's not really the case. You know, we, we, we claim our foundation is God, but it's not really the case. Sometimes it's because we, we follow God as long as he leads us in the direction we want to go, which isn't really following him at all, right? We, we say, I, I do all the things God tells me to unless I don't want to, right? which is being a law unto ourselves. Or, or maybe we go the other direction with it. We follow all the rules, every rule you could possibly come up with. We make sure we follow every one of them, and we think that God must love us because we can follow so many rules. Totally legalistic view of things. But whether, whether it's our own law unto ourselves or our own law keeping, if either of those are the foundation of our faith, then we are lost. The foundation must be Jesus. For he is the only one who has kept, perfectly kept the law of God. And he is the one who has died for our sins. As the hymnist put it, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And Jesus isn't just the solid rock on which we stand, the firm foundation, true and trustworthy. He is also the rock of ages that has been cleft for us that we might hide ourselves in him, trusting only in his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love. And as we Cry out to him for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. He does indeed hide us within him, wrapping himself around us so that his righteousness is all that the judge of the universe sees and that he might absorb the punishment that we deserve through his atoning death. Like the most wondrous work of God ever, when his son died on the cross for our sins. That's why Paul says when we come to the table, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to proclaim the wondrous works of God. And that's what we do when we partake of this meal. For his death is the only means by which we might be saved from the judgment of God. If you don't know that to be the case today, then I plead with you to to consider it. Consider the truth that, that whatever you are looking to apart from Jesus to be your salvation, to make you right with God, to earn your forgiveness, to, to be right with God, it is all sinking sand. Unless it is the solid rock of Jesus. Consider that he is the only way to salvation. And if you do know that, as I know many of you do, 
rejoice. Rejoice in the firm foundation which is yours. Rejoice that God has blessed you and brought you here, that God has, has graciously provided you with a foundation for your faith that is sure, with a fellowship in which you might experience the love of God and with a faithfulness that is not your own, but is his. And rejoicing in those things, come to the table. Come to the table where Jesus presides. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Let's pray.